Hey, what's up, everybody? I am Mr. Adam X, your host, and this is the Pursuit Podcast on the Auto Collective. I, yeah, snow's falling. We woke up to in you know western New York where I am. Some people woke up to an inch on their car. Some people woke up to three inches on their car. Uh, it's getting exciting. So yeah, we're here. Uh, I think I went on my last bike trip of the year, but hopefully not. Hopefully I'll get a couple more days in. Uh, I'm recording in my wonderful studio, which doesn't exist, so I'm standing in the middle of the woods. So if you hear a waterfall, that's what's happening. Uh, Yeah, short and sweet on this one. We have a new sponsor uh, throughout the collective. I'm really excited about it. The girls are really excited about it. Jabber's really excited about it. And the sponsors, Onyx, Onyx Backcountry specifically. If you don't know what it is, go to the App Store, download the app. Uh, It's basically a guidebook in your pocket. Uh, Slope shading, avalanche reports, trail systems. It's like a cheater map cheat code in your pocket while you're skiing. Um, If you want to be anything like Cody Townsend, I would get it because he uses it if that tells you anything about what this app does and how it is i mean that's it so long story long onyx backcountry is on board we're really excited Uh, i'm just starting to really understand it and get to use it although it's really simple and the features are amazing you can do it on your laptop and then save maps for offline use them on your phone Blah, blah 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 check it out onyx backcountry or in the whole Onyx network, if you're a hunter, if you ride off-road, check it out. Use code out of bounds for 20% off. I mean, it's $30 a year, guys, 20% off. And in the month of November, they are going to donate $10 of that to an avalanche center of your choice. So really, it's a $10 donation and a couple bucks. You get this amazing app that could t- turn into make your ski day better so onyx backcountry check it out now to my guest my guest this week is eliza sampy she is a doctor a untraditional doctor but with traditional studies you know went through the whole thing and we kind of talk about how she doesn't necessarily work in an office anymore and why she doesn't work in an office anymore Uh, she's a super athlete she has fastest known time for the Arizona 750, I believe is what it's called. We talk about that. We talk about Revel Bikes because we all know I'm geeking out on those. And we talk about her recent injury, almost a year to date. She took uh, a, a crash, got up, but suffered a severe concussion and has been struggling and battling with that since. So we talk about it. And uh, it's, it's an important episode. It's a really great listen. And Eliza's a ball of sunshine. So without further ado. I guess Dr. Eliza Eliza Stampy. Um, (laughs) So friends call me Liz also. I go by either. Um, I am a doctor of physical therapy and a professional, oh, I don't even know what to call myself, Um, adventure athlete, I guess, multi-sport adventure athlete. I used to say just mountain biker, but um, I really do a lot more than than just ride bikes and uh, and so, yeah, I do that. I own a small business, which is essentially myself as a physical therapist and performance coach. 
And one thing that I really believe in in my work, both in physical therapy and coaching, is a really integrative approach. So integrating body, integrating our mind, integrating our soul, integrating all of the logistics that it takes to pull off an adventure. So that, those are a lot of things that I teach my clients. I do one-on-one uh, -on -one coaching, I do group coaching. I used to do a lot of public speaking pre-COVID. I teach workshops. Um, and then I go and, and do fun things outside. <laughs> <laughs> I like that you said, one, you're a doctor, so congratulations on all your work, because that's <laughs> we need to thank every doctor and nurse and everyone out there. But two, you said teaching. Because I don't, when I go to the doctor, I don't, I don't feel like they're teaching me. Mm -hmm. And the yeah. fact that you just said that, you know, not baited, not anything, just, and I think that's important because you're clearly smarter than I am. And if I'm, if I'm going to a doctor, I'm like, hey, teach me so I can then know how to make this better. Don't just talk down on me like I'm a big, dumb idiot that I am. But I don't know. I thought it was interesting that you say teaching. Do you feel like... I know, I know you coach, so that's part of it as well, but the overlap is really interesting. Yeah. I guess do you, the question is, do you work in a normal office or do you only work for like your clients? Yeah. Wow. This is a, I didn't know we were <laughs> going to go here, but let's go here because I love it. Um, this is actually super important to me and I'm really passionate about it. <laughs> um, so I left the traditional healthcare system about seven years ago. Um, I, you know, I, I graduated from my doctoral program in 2008, and for quite a while I worked as a PT and I was a bike racer. And over the years, I got more opportunities in cycling and racing, and you know, was was fortunate enough to get some sponsorship money, um, and was able to cut down on the amount of traditional physical therapy I was doing so that I could focus more on racing. And then in 2013, I had a really bad accident where I dislocated my shoulder, broke my pelvis. Um, was basically off the bike for almost a year and wasn't able to work in physical therapy a lot either because that's very manual. And so that's when I started my business and my coaching business. And so the way that I left healthcare was really because of the whole like education versus like doctoring um, gap. And, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the provider's fault, it's the system, at least in my opinion and in the opinion of a lot of providers, because it's really kind of dictated by the insurance companies, like what we're able to do and how much time we're able to spend with our clients. Um, I like to say clients versus patients. Uh, it just gives the person that I'm working with a little more autonomy over their own care and over their own body. And it really, like, crushed my soul in my last year as a traditional physical therapist because... I didn't have the time to educate in the way that I really wanted to. Um, and something that, that you said that jumped out of me was, oh, I'm just a big, stupid, you know, idiot or whatever. Like, you're actually not. Like, I don't even know you and I know this because you have a brain and you have a body. And I really, truly believe that everybody has so much wisdom inside their bodies and inside their brains. And for me, as like a, I guess I'll call it wellness educator, <laughs> um, it's my job to help bring that out of you in a way that is sustainable for you because everybody's different, everybody's individual. So yeah, that's, you know, that's really, I guess, my take on it. I'm totally forgetting your original question and how you wanted me to answer this, but no, I, like it's, yeah, it's, it's real. Like the difference between like being a doctor and being an educator. Um, and I very much consider myself an educator. I think you answered it. I mean, it was a long winded 
nowhere question, <laughs> but I think you answered even with saying, you know, patients versus clients. And, mm -hmm. you know, you're a severely uh, educated human being and you get to share that knowledge with other human beings to just get the best out of their bodies, whether they're performance athletes mm -hmm. or just, I'm not a performance athlete. I'm an athlete. I do mm -hmm. athletic things every day. Mm -hmm. but nothing about me is a high, is a quote-unquote high-performance athlete. I just really enjoy it, and that's what I need to do for, you know, my mental health. And that's, Absolutely. Right, that's what keeps me yeah. going. But it's... Yeah, and I, I think your original question was actually, do I still work in a clinic setting? And the, answer, the short answer is no. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're, you're an outdoor enthusiast. You're an athlete, you know, and, and I work with all types of outdoor enthusiasts, whether... You know, some of them don't even consider themselves athletes, although I typically say you are. Um, but, yeah, I don't work in a traditional setting anymore. So you left 10 years ago-ish. Uh, like seven. Seven yeah. years ago. How's it going? Is it, is, it, does it go, is it going well? Yeah, well, currently no, because I, <laughs> I had a little incident that happened uh, a year ago that I'm sure we'll get to. But, um, yeah, I mean, when I first left, I really focused more on my athlete pursuits, and I was – super burnt out on healthcare and you know I got the opportunity to go to Iceland to ride for a, an adventure film and that was amazing and really kind of just blew my mind open to the possibilities of what else is out there for an adventure athlete besides competition and that kind of kicked off my career in expedition and so after that I moved to Guatemala um, I you know started doing expedition work started writing for magazines and getting sponsors for expedition and kind of like pivoting my athlete career and so I focused a lot on that for a couple years and just did a little bit of coaching here and there. And then, you know, in true like me fashion, I got bored. <laughs> I'm just somebody that can't focus on one thing exclusively. And I loved my athlete work, but I really missed teaching, honestly. Like I missed the, the educational aspect of what I used to do. And so, you know, that's when I kind of brought my really, you know, started to work on my coaching business, started doing kind of non-traditional physical therapy and more of a coaching format. Um, and it was great. Like I, you know, made my own schedule. I worked when I wanted to, I didn't work when I didn't want to. Um, I took the amount of clients that I wanted to take. Um, and I'm, I'm somebody that like, I love my work so much. I love all aspects of my work, but I don't want my work to like completely overtake my life. And so I, uh, you know, I haven't worked a ton. I don't, I don't work a 40 hour week. It's been a long time since I have, um, sometimes I work like 60 to 80 hour weeks. <laughs> just depending on what I have going on, you know, like if I've got a big project coming up and I'm dealing with sponsors and, and route planning and logistics and all this stuff, like, yeah, it's a huge week, especially if I'm also coaching. Um, but, you know, generally I try not to work so much that I get burnt out and super stressed out. Like I'm just not wired that way at all. Um, yeah. Very so it, it, it's been going well. Like it's been going well in the way that I want it to go. You know, like the traditional model of success, like, oh, I'm making a million dollars and I, you know, have, I'm retired already. Like, no, I'm not doing that. But I don't ever <laughs> want to retire. I love what I do. <laughs> yeah, but I think that's an interesting take. And I think people need to hear that because success right now is so much defined on like making that million dollars or retiring early. And it's like success to maybe you or me is like, I'm happy. And if mm -hmm. I can continue to be happy and still provide for myself and my family and like, that's important yeah, all while totally. finding like the time to be, I mean, for you specifically, like 
what do you con- do you consider yourself an expedition athlete or do you just cover it over the whole umbrella yeah i would say so you know expedition athlete adventure athlete you know i, I do still race and love it and um that is a focus of mine but yeah i mean i would say that expedition style projects are kind of my primary um my primary interest so how does this work for someone who doesn't have any idea how this works you get a light bulb goes off <laughs> yeah you call all yeah. your sponsors and you <laughs> for lack of a better term say give me money and in return i will give you this amazing content that will then make you money i mean i guess in a nutshell yeah <laughs> um <laughs> No, it's, it's not that simple. I mean, it is and it isn't, you know. I, um, the first expedition project that I did was to fat bike mountaineer volcanoes in Guatemala. And uh, for that, I secured a feature article in Mountain Fire magazine before I went after sponsorship. And so, you know, I had this mega deliverable in this big mountain bike publication. And that I could go, go to sponsors, you know, and, and I'd never done anything like that before. And so I could go to sponsors and be like, hey, I got a feature article on Mountain Fire. You want to jump on board this project? And, uh, you know, and, and some said no and some said yes. And some sent product and some sent money and some sent both. And, um, you know, fortunately, Guatemala, I was living there at the time. And it's a pretty low cost place to, to do a thing, to, which, you know, includes life or expedition or whatever. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I started. And. And now it's kind of the same thing. I'll write a proposal. I'll, I'll get an idea. You know, like uh, 2019, right before COVID, I went to Pakistan. And that was kind of an idea that was born out of um, collaboration with a teammate of mine at the time who was a, you know, 20-year expedition kayaker. And uh, I do a lot of pack rafting, but I'm not a, I'm not a class five paddler like, like this person was. And, um, and so, you know, he and I were hanging out and we were paddling together up in the gorge and, and uh, we started talking about different places that we'd been and, and uh, we were like, yeah, we should do a project together. How about Pakistan? Okay. And so I planned, the, it was a bike rafting trip, so bike packing, pack rafting. And so I planned, he wasn't a mountain athlete at all. Um, I planned the mountain part of the trip. He planned the river part of the trip. We collaborated on both those things. We made this huge, you know, 1500 mile route through Pakistan, India, Nepal. Um, and uh, yeah, and so, you know, that's how it started. We, we used Gaia GPS and Google Earth, you know, to, to plan a lot of the stuff and, and then find a route. And then essentially I'll write a proposal um, and send it to different companies. And, and ideally they're companies that I've already had some sort of contact with or, you know, not necessarily current sponsors of mine, but people that I know or people that I've worked with before or whatever, you know, and I say like, hey, this is what I'm doing. These are the deliverables. Do you have anything else in mind that you would like out of this trip in terms of content? Um, and, you know, are you interested in, in working together on this? And, and sometimes they're like, oh, that sounds super cool, but that's not where our marketing efforts are going right now, and so we're going to have to pass. And I'm like, all right, sweet. And then some people are, are psyched to get on board. This is a very open question, but how much time would you say you have into just the planning stages of a trip like a Pakistan trip? You know, it really depends. Um, I am somebody that is a pretty rapid implementer. Um, so Pakistan, <laughs> we decided we were going to go in August, and we left in October. That's like impressive. the end of October. But yeah. is it a 40-hour so, work week leading up to that? Like every- oh, yeah. I mean, those are the, when I was saying 60 to 80-hour work weeks, yeah. Yeah, when I we, just think when it's- I plan a trip, 
and we want to go quickly, like there's a lot that has to happen. That was the most logistically complex trip I have ever put together. Like Pakistan and India in particular are very complex in order to be able to move through those countries. And so, yeah, it was like 60 hour weeks from the moment we decided we were going until we got in the airplane for sure. I just think it's important to ask and for people to hear the answer as like, cause we see the finished product, whether it be an article or a, um, video project or a photo, you know, deliverable. Yeah. And you're like, ah, oh, I want to do that with my friends. And you're like, yeah, but I'm also managing this coaching business and I'm still training and I'm planning for this and I'm not getting a dollar yet. Presum right. Not like it's all about money, but we're trying, like, I'm just trying to drive home the fact of people listening who want to be, it's a lot of work. It takes a lot of work yeah. to plan those things and do those things. And that's why people pay guides a lot of money <laughs> to go and, Absolutely. to go and do yeah. it because you just yeah, show up totally. with your backpack. <laughs> what is the, is there something that you bring on every trip? Like your hands down, you must have. Oh man. Uh, yeah, actually <laughs> this is going to be hilarious. You might, you may or may not expect this answer. Um, I bring a pee rag on every trip. Is it the cool cloth? Because everyone loves it. Yes, the I love the cool cloth. <laughs> uh, I've been bringing those for a couple years. Um, but before I knew about them, or maybe even before they existed, I would just bring like half a bandana or something like that. Um, but yeah. I mean, as a woman, like hygiene down there is so important, especially when you're wearing the same freaking pair of pants for like three months. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I just don't want like pee dripping down my legs. Like drip dry, drip dry is not real. Um, and you know, especially in the winter, the Pakistan trip was a winter expedition and like it's cold. I don't want to stand there and wait to dry. I just want to like wipe and be clean and hygienic and be done with it. So yeah, a pee rag is something I take on every single trip. For anyone who and doesn't cool know, cloth. the cool cloth is an antibacterial reusable technical pea cloth yeah technical pea cloth but look them up this is not a sponsored ad but they're just no i don't know they seem like really good people i bought one for my girlfriend she brings it everywhere same thing we went on a dirt biking trip she had it like attached to her backpack so i don't know i never used one but they seem great and i just know people <laughs> who use them so any female listeners listening go buy one uh yeah they're great <laughs> but that's real and that's a great answer I want to talk about your Astro van. We're going to swerve, but you're a van, oh, yeah. you're a van yeah. person as am I. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, tell me about your van. Tell me its name first. <laughs> <laughs> her name is Susie blue. <laughs> she goes by she and her. She's very feminine. She's, um, I bought her sight unseen in Portland, Oregon in 2015. Uh, I was living in Crested Butte, Colorado at the time, which I had lived for the three years prior. And it was, gosh, I don't remember if it was before or after I went to Iceland, actually. I think it was before. I went to Iceland in July. I think I bought the van in May or June. Um, but I, I had decided I was going to, like, upend my life. I ended the relationship I was in at the time. I quit my physical therapy job. I left. I had a lot of great, like, local sponsors for my bike racing in Crested Butte. I left those, I was really sad, I loved them. Um, and I, I left everything and I took my dog and my bike and, and very small amount of things and 
I, you know, moved into the van and I looked in Colorado and there's just, there just weren't a lot of great vans or vans for decent prices. And my thought going into it was like, oh, I'm going to do this for a year, you know, until I figure out what I want to do next, until I find where I want to land, whatever. And so I bought this Astro van from this little tiny dealer in Portland and I went out there and I saw it for the very first time and I was like, oh my God, it's so small. <laughs> But, you know, I'm a small person. I'm like barely five foot two. Um, I have a huge dog. Um, but, you know, we don't we don't hang out in the van all the time. We play outside all the time. So, but I built the van out myself. I ripped the seats out right there at the dealer. I was like, here, y'all can have these. And they're like, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I, I got in the van and I went to, uh, to British Columbia. That was the first place that I went. And I, I learned how to build it out basically by watching YouTube videos. I'd never done anything like that before. And, I did this really rudimentary build um, based on watching YouTube. And, and since then, I've done three different interior builds. They've actually gotten more minimalist as I've gone. Um, but, you know, I've got a bed that pulls out, and I can flip out the mattress, and it's a full-size bed. Um, or, you know, if it's the small version, I'm tiny enough that I can sleep, like, width-wise in it still. And then it's got a little kitchen that I can set up pretty quickly. I just use a, you know, uh, Camp Chef stove. And I can set up my chair in there, and I can cook inside the van if it's terrible weather, but it's usually not. Um, and, you know, I have a solar shower, just a Nemo, like, foot pump solar shower that feels like you're spraying yourself with a sink sprayer. Um, but <laughs> I've got that. And, yeah, and I, it's pretty minimal, but I'm pretty self-sustaining. I don't use, like, public facilities or anything. I just camp out on public lands, and I just love being out in the middle of nowhere with my dog by myself. I'm a total introvert, and, and you know, I don't miss, like... I don't use gyms and rec centers and stuff like that. I just go out and like hang out naked in the desert and <laughs> hang out with my dog and ride my bike and play my ukulele and yeah, it's pretty. It's been pretty great. And you know, I, I intended to do it for a year and and uh, I've been at it for six. So that's that's amazing. <laughs> that is a, that is fantastic. And I really enjoyed that you said you don't really hang out in the van because I've always said you don't live in a van. You live out of a van. Exactly. And it's just yeah, like what's a, your van? Well, long story long, I just sold a Ford Transit. Okay. Uh, mine was not a minimal build. It was a mm -hmm. all dialed up. And I just sold a Ford Transit about three weeks ago, and I just picked up a Mercedes Sprinter yesterday. Oh, wow. Congratulations so, on your new purchase. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but it's funny you said sight unseen. I actually bought... A sprinter last week sight unseen got to philadelphia and it was nothing like they explained and i was like nope take a walk okay. like i had to like fight with them to like get my oh my god it was a little crazy so it's funny that you wow. said sight unseen because that's yeah i got lucky <laughs> i mean i saw pictures of it and stuff but it was mm -hmm. they lied a lot so i got my that's money bummer. back obviously and was it built already before you got it no it was empty oh, okay. it was just okay. um okay. It was just trashed. It was like yeah. a lot of Bondo yeah. and a lot of, it was like a buy here. It was like a shady dealership who was just trying to mm -hmm. flip it. But I'm yeah. fairly mechanically inclined and like mm -hmm. knew what to look for. And I was like, this, no, not happening. So what, long story long. But yeah, I just got a Mercedes and I have four weeks to build it out because oh. I have to build, I have a, a client's van coming in to build. So I literally have four weeks to build it from an empty <laughs> shell to a van. Oh my gosh. Wow. So, so you build vans for other people too. Yeah. I don't do it like, okay. it's like a side gig, but mm -hmm. I do do it. 
Uh, I enjoy it. I'm okay at it. I like to think I'm pretty good at it, but mm-hmm. I don't own like a van building business. It's just something right. that I do on the side. But yeah. yeah, I've been in and out of vehicles for seven years. So it's been, mm-hmm. it's, it's addicting. It's one of those things. I have that Nemo shower you're talking about as well. It's great. It's like yeah. the best shower mm-hmm. on the planet for, <laughs> yeah. but it's, I don't know. It's like, no, I mean, you know it cause you know that feeling cause you have one and use it, but like, it's like nothing on the planet. Just being able to like float, but still be in the comforts of your own abode. Like it's not, it's, yeah. a, it's a home, but it's not like a, it's a van. It's a vehicle. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I've lived in vehicles off and on since I was 17. Like I, I'm from Minnesota and I graduated high school at 17 and moved to Colorado and lived in a two door hatchback car for, you know, a summer before I went to college. Um, and you know, I've, I've lived in vehicles off and on ever since. And I lived in New Zealand in a station wagon for a year, you know, and that was kind of the biggest thing that I'd ever lived in. And when I was racing bikes, I lived out of my Jeep Cherokee for a while. And so when I got the little Astro, I'm like, yeah, it's little, but it's bigger than anything else I'd ever lived in, uh, vehicle wise. So <laughs> it still feels pretty roomy for me. Do you think you'll ever go to like a sprinter or a transit or a pro master or are you pretty good with the astro um, you know i love my astro the only way that i would um i my my current partner also has a dog and if if he and myself and the two dogs were to decide to do van life together for a l- extended amount of time we probably would um during covid so we met right before i went to pakistan and when I came back, I got back in early February and COVID basically followed me home. <laughs> and, you know, then the world exploded. And so he and I, he came into my van with me and we went to the Sonoran Desert for like three months. And it was great. It was a great way to get to know each other. We just like rode bikes and made food and did all the things, you know. And it was, we made it work. Like we, we got along really well. We figured out how to coexist in a really small space together with the dogs and, and everything. And it was totally fine. But, you know, if we were to like, do that for a year or something we certainly would need a bigger van but you know just myself so right now i'm at his place i'm kind of like half in my van at this point and half i stay with him in logan utah he's a grad student right now um he's going back for a different degree um and so when i'm in my van it's pretty much just me and cody my dog so yeah i mean it's plenty big for the two of us nice yeah yeah i could talk vans for ever because i love them and i think everyone should own a van even if you if like oh i have kids i'm like buy a van like buy a minivan well that's how i grew up you know i'm the oldest of four kids and we always have vans yeah and one of the things i love about it too is i've you were saying that you were mechanically inclined i've never been mechanically inclined but since i've had my van i've had a lot of fun learning how to work on it like i changed i changed the radiator core i changed the starter like i just put airbag suspension in the rear of my van and it's always just me and a friend that we're like i'm like hey i want to do this you want to help me out let's learn together and so again youtube is so amazing but i've really realized how you know simple it is to work on my own vehicle and obviously there are some things i can't do i'm not going to touch a transmission or whatever but there's a lot more that i can actually do than i ever thought so that's been really neat. Yeah, my when I was young, I was working on I worked on cars my whole life, not with my dad. He's not mechanically. He can read a manual and fix anything, mm-hmm. but he doesn't like have the but my buddy's dad who was like, like my best friend growing up. So he's like the second dad, you know. He was always like think of every roofer, every mechanic, every plumber, every handyman, and he is all of those things. He's like, "What do we all have in common? We're all idiots." And he's like, and you're an idiot too, so you can do it. 
But when you, it's funny, and it's and I don't mean anyone's an idiot, and I but it always well, stuck in my head that like, oh yeah, these are trades, and they're not. They're hard, and the people mechanics are masterminds. And I'm not. Mm-hmm. I don't want to discredit anybody on the air or anything. But you know what I mean? It's one of those things. Yeah. Like, yeah, breaks are breaks. You can do mm-hmm. that. Like, it's yeah. just have to look at it. And thanks to YouTube, we now can. Mm-hmm. But it's such a dumb quote that's always stuck in my head. Like, you just have to try. And, like, if you take something apart, it goes together the same way. Mm-hmm. And that being said, a transmission is scary or whatever. But, yeah, yeah, it's always a dumb quote that's stuck in my head. Like, hey, you're an idiot, too. Mm-hmm. which was his Absolutely. way of saying, you can do this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, that's, I tell people that all the time. I'm like, I'm not a mechanic. Like, it took me years to figure out how to wrench my own bike, you know, but I'm working on my own car, and, and I don't think it's for everybody, you know. If people don't enjoy it, then don't do it. Like, go pay someone else to do it because that's what they do. But I really like it. And so, you know, if people think that they might enjoy it, just, like, give it a go. <laughs> I think that's with anything. Like, just try whether it be your bicycle or your ski, like tune your own skis, fix your own bike. Like, I don't know. There's just some pride in it. And I, I enjoy it. And it's therapeutic in a way and its own, its own way. I don't know. In its own weird way, but. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I want, I have notes here, so I'm kind of going to jump. Totally. Tell me about the Arizona trail. It's, (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) it seems like quite the undertaking. Uh, mm-hmm. you, I'll yeah. just leave you with that. Tell me about the okay, Arizona sure. trail. Yeah. Well, huh, I saw it because just this morning, the 2021 Arizona trail race began and I was unfortunately, obviously not on the starting line. Um, I really wanted to be, but it just wasn't in the cards for me this year. It is amazing. It's the best bike ride I've ever been on in my whole life. Uh, so it's an 800-mile trail that goes from Mexico to Utah all the way across Arizona. And when I raced it, I didn't really know much about Arizona when I decided to race it. So I moved down there in my van uh, in the fall of 2018. I was just riding, and I'd been there a couple months, and I was like, maybe I should race the full Arizona trail. And I you know, talked to a couple friends that have done it before that, you know, whatever, and, and they were like, oh, you shouldn't race the whole thing your first year, you should race the 300. So there's two races, there's the 300, which is the first 300 miles, and then there's the, used to be the 750 when I did it, now it's the 800, it's longer, um, and that's the full AZT. And, you know, so everybody was like, oh, do the 300 first, the 750 is really hard, <clears throat> and I was like, I like long things, like, I just, I race, one, one reason I ultra race, the biggest reason is because I just love traveling through the backcountry. I absolutely love it. And yeah, I like to go fast. I like to fine tune my body and my bike and, and everything to see how fast I can go. But really, I just like to move through the backcountry, and I'd rather do that for, you know, 10 days than for two days. <laughs> and so I decided I was going to race the full uh, 750. And, and so, you know, I was there, I was down there, I was training. At first, I was really scared. Like, Arizona's pokey. Have you spent much time down there at all? Not a ton. Not on a bike. Oh, absolutely yeah. not. But I've been there. Everything bites and pokes and sticks in you. And like, I was, I had this like really irrational fear of like, you know, being on my bike at two o'clock in the morning and being super sleep deprived and hallucinating, you know, five, six days in and falling into a choya. And uh, if, if people don't know what a choya is, it's a kind of cactus that has like the spines all over it and it comes off in balls. And so if you get a choya ball, say on your arm, and then you try to pull it off, well, now you have a choya ball in your hand. 
right? So it's like this cactus is kind of terrifying. <laughs> I was like, what if that happens? Um, <clears throat> you know, and it didn't, it was totally fine. But I had these fears and, and as I spent the winter basically getting to know Arizona, I did some riding on the AZT, but a lot of just riding on other terrain in Arizona, I just really got to love the desert. And to, to so many people, and to me at first, it seemed just really desolate and really harsh and really scary. Um, but it's just so beautiful and alive. Like I'd never seen a saguaro before. And I sat at the base of a saguaro for two hours, the first time that I like saw one and just sat there and just like observed this massive plant that was hundreds of years old. And as I was sitting there, you know, just watching the desert around me, I was like, oh my God, there's so much life here. And that was just a really cool realization. And so then on my bike rides and my runs and in my in-between times when I just sit in my van and just stare out into space and watch bugs or whatever, like I just, I just fell in love with it. There's so much life in the desert. And so, you know, by the time I did the race, it was really like, it was just like a celebration of everything that I'd grown to love about the desert. And, you know, moving through those landscapes and, and Arizona has the most varied landscapes. I, I never would have guessed, you know, there's like, the Canelo Hills near the Mexican border is like rolling grassy hills. You'd never expect that there. And then there's desert and there's mountains and there's, you know, pondy forests and there's the Grand Canyon. You have to walk your bike and all your gears through the Grand Canyon all on your back. Um, you know, and then there's the red cliffs of Utah. There's just, there's so many landscapes. And the thing I love about ultra racing too is being able to ride through the night and everything looks different at night. There's all these different little creatures that come out at night. There's these baby owls that like sit on the trail and wait for, I don't know, mice to like fall into their mouths. <laughs> but you come riding by and, and they just jump out from under your tire, you know, and you're like, ah. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, it's just like, it's, it was just this really beautiful experience. And the trail is just amazing. And, and for anybody who, has the opportunity to spend any time like riding or walking any part of the Arizona Trail, it's definitely worth it. It's just a beautiful celebration of everything that that state has to offer. You were also the fastest woman to ever complete that trail, correct? Yes, on a mountain bike. On a mountain mm -hmm. bike. I yes. like that you skipped well, that Well, I guess part. maybe that's overall. I don't know if anybody's walked faster than, <laughs> than I rode. But yeah, I, I, uh, I broke the women's record in, in what was then the AZT 750, um, and I did it in nine days, 11 hours, and 44 minutes. Did you plan on that? Like, were you going for fastest known time? Mm -hmm. Oh, you I were was. going for it. It was a plan. <clears throat> yep. Very much so. And it, you know, honestly, the time, like, it's a good time, but it's beatable for sure. Like, I, I mean, I, I could go faster. Um, I played it pretty safe in that race. Um, in a long ultra like that, there's so many factors. You can't just be a strong rider. You know, it's, it's self-supported. You have to plan your resupplies. You can't run out of calories, but you don't want too much food because then it's heavy. Like your water sources are super important, especially in the desert. Um, there's just so many logistics that go into racing that long of an ultra and even finishing it, much less getting an FKT. And then there's, you know, does your, does your, bike work the whole time. That terrain is so hard on bikes. I raced the Colorado Trail in 2018 and was like leading the women's race and on record pace and 35 miles from the finish, my hub exploded and I wasn't able to finish. Like I, I ran with my parts on my back for like another 13 miles, but 22 miles from the finish, I pulled off because 
my body was destroyed. I did not, you know, that race, I just went for broke. I just like ran my body into the ground, all sorts of body issues that I just pushed through, pushed through, pushed through, felt terrible, kept pushing, kept pushing. And then my hub exploded and there was just no way to save it. And so I really learned in that race, like how important it is to take care of your body and to take care of your equipment even throughout the race. And so in the AZT, like I rode fast, but I was really, really mindful of not pushing myself to the brink because I was like, well, if I do that, if I push myself to the absolute brink, I might break the record by, you know, quite a bit, quite a few more hours or a day or whatever, but I also might not finish. And in order to break the record, you have to finish. <laughs> and so it was, it was very much planned. I had all of my splits. Um, Alice Drobna was the previous record holder. She's super fast. She's a great athlete. Uh, I knew exactly how long she took at all her resupplies. I knew exactly how long it took her to get from, you know, point A to point B. I knew exactly where the course that I was on was longer than the course that she was on because there were different, there were new single track segments that have been added. So I knew where I needed to make up time. I knew where I needed to push. I knew where I was able to like sit up and breathe for a minute. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a really calculated effort. And uh, I broke the record by only two hours. So I got it pretty close. I mean, it's still, yeah. I mean, Two hours is two hours. That's a big, it's a big difference. How important is nutrition during all that? Oh, it's everything. I mean, it's so like, especially during something that long. Like I always plan to in my in my races and my rides and expedition whatever. Like I plan to eat 250 to 300 calories an hour, um, the entire time. And so you know if I'm riding. Like 15 hours a day is a really short day for an ultra. I don't know that I've ever ridden that short of a day. I don't think I have. Uh, it's usually like 18 plus hours. Like if you're moving for that long and you're trying to put back in all of those calories, there's no way, even if you're really diligent about your 250 to 300 an hour, there's no way you can put back the amount of calories that you burn over the course of that long of a bike ride days and days and days and days in a row. And so it's really important to just put back as much as you can. And the other thing during an ultra, like I've been really lucky, I have a good stomach and I'm gonna knock on wood here because I don't wanna jinx myself. A lot of people have issues with their gut in, in races and I don't. And so for me, it's just really important to vary the foods that I have. I'm a big fan of real food. I eat a lot of breakfast burritos, I eat pizza, I eat tamales. I eat uh, like cookies and pastries, I eat beef jerky, I eat Fritos, I eat, I drink beer. <laughs> One of my favorite memories from the ACT was resupplying at this gas station at one o'clock in the morning and then taking off down this pavement section and there's nobody on the road, you know, it's just me, I've got my light on and I have this giant Tecate that is in my, <laughs> <laughs> my bottle cage and I'm just like riding with no hands, drinking my Tecate, just loving life, you know. Um, yeah, liquid and calories. Like, totally, totally. And it's just fun. It's silly, you know. And I, I skinny dip during ultras when I can. Um, and, you know, I'm obviously like a very, very serious racer. <laughs> but I also have fun, you know, and like that's why I'm out there. And so, yeah, nutrition is super important. Um, there's a lot of people that I coach that, that, oh gosh, where do I even begin with this? I, one of the things that I've learned the most about people in general, maybe females more than males, probably, but I don't know that I want to say that for sure, is that everybody has like a thing about food. Like, oh, I don't want to eat too much because I don't want to get fat. Or I don't want to eat 
these things because they're not healthy. Like in ultras, a lot of times you're resupplying at 2 a.m. at a gas station. Like you're not going to find a lot of healthy options. You know, are they like, oh, I'm vegan, I'm paleo, I'm keto, I'm all of these diets. And that's great in real life, but when you're out on your bike, even if you're not racing an ultra, like I worked with an athlete this summer, a good friend of mine who did this, you know, really long multi-week bikepacking trip on the Continental Divide Trail. And she's normally vegetarian, and that's great for her normal life, but she was having a really hard time getting enough calories in and getting enough protein, and she just didn't feel strong. And so she ended up, you know, going back to eating meat on the trail. And then, you know, when she got back home, she went back to her vegetarian diet. But there's just so many different things when you're just having, when your body just has that much output, energy output all the time, that people don't think about in real life. And so, like, when you're doing this stuff, it's okay to eat stuff that's not 100% healthy, and it's okay to eat a ton of food. You're not going to get fat. Um, yeah, that's something that I have to work with people on a lot. Well, I think at that point, it just becomes fuel. Like, your car exactly. needs fuel. That's plain exactly. and simple. Like, yeah. whether it's premium fuel or, you know, whatever, 88 ethanol is or whatever, like, it's fuel. <laughs> sure, yeah. your Mercedes might run better on premium or your Volts, totally. whatever, Mm-hmm. But you just need fuel or it's not going to go yeah. anywhere. And exactly. at that, and that's a really simple way to put it. But when you're doing ultras and those type of things, it's that simple. You have to have fuel, whether it's those orange dyed cheese and crackers, like you yep. need that salt <laughs> and you need that fuel. And that's, mm-hmm. I'm sure it's difficult to drive home because with, you know, fitness, we just link it to special diets and what we only put in our body. And yeah. that's, I think that's a ter- that's one of those things that people don't maybe they're new to it and I don't know maybe I'm speculating but I remember the first time I went to Tucks I had like all these Tuckerman's Ravine a big yeah, spot yeah. that we all mm-hmm. tour mm-hmm. everyone had or it was like my first time there I was nervous you know like I don't know what I'm doing I'm with a bunch of people who know what they're doing quote unquote mm-hmm. and I had like cliff bars and like <laughs> and we got to like the bottom of the bowl like the floor Mm-hmm. And people pulled out like donuts and pizza <laughs> and subs. And here mm-hmm. I was like with my cliff bar, which was fine. And it was acceptable. It was frozen at that point. <laughs> right. But it wasn't. And I was like, oh, I'm burning enough calories that I just need something that tastes good, mm-hmm. is fuel, is carbs, is whatever. Yeah. And also mental. Like, yeah. I think that helps with mental. Like, I always try to have, like, M&M's or something because they're, like, mm-hmm. my little happy snack. Like, I think of oh. E.T. and, like, Elliot, like, putting out, like, I don't know. It makes, <laughs> so when I'm, like, sad and, like, bonking, I can have an yeah. M&M, whether or not totally. that helps fuel my ride or not. It's a mental thing, too. So having that Takati is, like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I'm having fun. I'm doing this yeah. for fun. Yeah. Yeah, totally. For me, it's gummy worms. That's my, especially ski touring. Like I do a lot of the kind of bigger expedition style projects I've done, at least over this last year, have been uh, ski rafting, which is ski mountaineering and pack rafting. And like with that, you're not stopping at a gas station to get a Tecate, you know, but I, I do bring usually a little flask of whiskey and I have gummy worms. Like that's my thing. If I'm on the skin track and I'm just getting dusted by my teammates and I'm just like, oh my God, I'm so tired. I'll just pull out a gummy worm and suck on it. And that's my. Yeah, I always have twin food. snakes in my bibs. Twin snakes? Twin snakes are, they're gummy worms, but they're, they're like oh. the greatest, I'm telling you, twin snakes. They sell them everywhere. Oh, okay. It's I'll a, it's a that. gummy worm, but they're called okay. twin snakes and they're so flavorful. But it's also funny too, like, even if I'm not the one getting dusted, which usually I am, 
But like once my like we'll stop and my buddies will catch up. I'm like, you want a twin snake? And it like switches your brain because it's funny oh, yeah. and it makes you, I don't know, makes you laugh. Mm-hmm. And that's all you need. Oh. Half of it's mental. Yeah. For what sure. is your favorite memory of the Arizona Trail? Like if there's oh, one memory that pops out. Hmm. Ah, okay, I got one. That's a hard one because there's so many. It's a long race. Um, so let's see. I think maybe two days in or somewhere around that like 24 to 40 hour mark or whatever, um, I actually caught the woman who was leading the 300. So we start in different places. The 750 or the 800 people start at the border and the 300 people start at Parker Canyon Lake. And so there's a they get a bit of a head start on the people doing the whole thing. And so I caught uh, Annie Lloyd Evans from Scotland, who's also, you know, she's an amazing ultra racer, amazing expedition athlete. And I caught her at like, I don't know, midnight or something like that. And so we rode together for a while, chatting it up. We'd actually never met in person, but we knew who each other were and everything. And we chatted together, rode together for a little while, and then we kind of, you know, split up, and I forget who went ahead first, me or her or whatever, but we spent the next few hours riding this section called Ripsy Ridge, and it's just these beautiful ridge lines, and you're, you know, going on the ridge lines, and you're going down into the canyons and back up, and it was like a full moon, it was just beautiful, and Annie and I are just chasing each other, and, you know, we'll, one of us would catch the other one and pass her and keep going, and we'd just hoot at each other, and, you know, you could, when I would see her little headlight or her lamp, you know, and I'd be like, woo, and I'd hear her go, whoop. <laughs> and so, you know, we're just chasing each other and hooting at each other and riding together, you know, all through this whole section. And, and that was just so much fun. And the, the hardest part of that was, like, I had to tell myself, like, I'm not racing the 300. You know, I wanted to keep going. She was going to go all the way through the night because she, like, was just, she was racing the 300 and she wanted to finish and win that race, and I, you know, there was a part of me that's like, oh, I want to race her, you know, I want to, like, <laughs> try to, try to compete with her, but I knew that I had so much farther to go than that, and so I was like, nope, like, you're not racing the 300, you're not racing the 300, and so finally I made myself, I was ahead of her by a little bit at this point, and I made myself, like, stop and crawl into my bivy, <laughs> and, uh, but I was so wired still, I have a hard time falling asleep in an ultra because I'm just, like, psyched all the time, I love night riding, and so I crawl in my baby, and I'm like, Ugh. and then Annie, you know, comes by, and, and she sees me, or I see her, or whatever, and we stop, and, and uh, she stops, and we start chatting about pack rafting. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she was like, why are we talking about pack rafting? But, you know, she, we're both pack rafters or whatever, and so we chat about pack rafting for, you know, five or ten minutes, and then Annie's like, hey, I got to go, I'm still racing. <laughs> so we're in the middle of a race right now. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm like, bye, have fun, you know, and so then she she goes on to win the 300, and, um, you know, I took a few hours of sleep and then got up in the morning and kept going, but, yeah, that was just super fun. It was just a really, like, kind of, like, competitive but also camaraderie-type experience, so, yeah. And it's cool. It's such a race against yourself, and your favorite memory is, like, shared with someone Mm -hmm. else, whether or not you thought of it like that. That's, like, a neat... Because it is. It is a selfish sport in that aspect like it's you versus yourself yeah. that's what it is yeah. to hear you know a moment that's just like shared that's cool that's interesting mm-hmm. to hear you chose to yeah. do it on a revel rascal mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that seems like an odd pick for me not knowing this race that well mm-hmm. why a revel rascal over even just a ranger if we're just talking in revel but you picked more of a trail bike versus a cross-country bike is that a normal pick for you know, go ahead 
the, yeah, so the way that I that I ended up writing a Revel is um, Chris Reichel, who's the marketing director of Revel, is a very good friend of mine. Uh, we met in Iceland in 2015. We were on two separate media trips, and you know we met at a party, and uh, we just hit it off. Like he's he's just kind of irreverent in the way that like he's very much himself. Like he doesn't care about whoever anyone else wants him to be. He's very much himself, and I'm similar. And so we hit it off, and you know our paths kind of crossed over the years here and there, and we'd stay in touch, we'd hang out, we'd ride bikes, and we ended up on. We were in Arizona, Southern Arizona at the same time. This was like New Year's of 2018. And uh, we were, I think we were Zooming or something. He was in Mexico. I was in Arizona. It was like New Year's. He was with another buddy of ours and we're Zoom chatting. Oh, we're drinking, whatever. And uh, I think it was on that phone call that he asked me, he's like, oh, let's go do this stupid like bikepacking, packrafting mission in Mexico in like three days. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and so... So, you know, I drive down there and uh, meet up with Chris and we go do this stupid bikepacking, packrafting thing. Um, and on that trip, uh, I was riding for a different bike company at the time and, and uh, I really liked the bike and, and I was planning um, to ride, I was planning to race the AZT on, on the bike that I had and, um, and that was the, uh, the Juliana Joplin, I was riding for Juliana. And that's, that's a great 29er, it's a, I think I had it set up like 130, 115, 120, 115, something like that. Um, with a suspension, and that was the bike I was planning to ride in AZT. And so Chris and I are on this trip, and he's like, "Hey," and he's like, "I got a secret for you." And I was like, "Okay." He's like, "You can't tell anybody about this, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you." And I was like, "All right." He's like, "How attached are you to riding for Juliana next year?" And I was like, oh, "I don't know. Like, they're, you know, I've ridden for them a couple years. Like, they're, they're great bikes. I like them." Like uh, Kelly Emmett was the athlete manager at that time, and she and I were old friends from XC Racing back in the day. But I didn't really have like a really strong relationship with that crew, you know, and they were mostly a crew of enduro riders and I was kind of a lone like ultra athlete that I think I only got bikes because of Kelly and, you know, I just never had a real huge rapport with that company. And I was like, yeah, I don't know, like they're great, but I'm not attached. And Chris was like, well, like I'm cooking up this project with some some buddies, also big players in the bike industry, and uh, we're making a, a sweet new carbon bike that's going to come out in the spring, and that was Revel. And so, you know, that's how I learned about Revel, and he, you know, showed me the, the picture of the Rascal prototype, and I was like, oh. <laughs> and he told me who else was involved, you know, and, and I didn't know Adam Miller at the time, the, the um, CEO of Revel, um, but I knew who he was, you know, he he had started Borealis Fat Bikes, and he started Y-Cycles, and, um, you know, I knew some of the other guys involved uh, just from the industry, and I, I was like, yeah, this, like, this is a great crew. I think you guys are going to do really great things, and this seems like a really great bike, and he's like, do you want to race this bike in the Arizona Trail? <laughs> and I was like, sure! <laughs> And that's how that went, and, and, you know, we launched the brand at the Sedona Mountain Bike Festival in 2019, early 2019, and so the, the Ranger didn't exist yet. Like, they launched with the Rascal and the Rail, which is their 27.5 kind of more downhill-style park bike, enduro bike. And, you know, the, the Rascal is, um, so I run it as, as 140 in the front and 130 in the rear, and it, the thing that really surprised me about that bike, the first time I rode it, was the climbing capability. Like, I knew it would go downhill well, but I got on that bike and I was climbing things I'd never been able to climb before on trails I was really familiar with. And I was just like, oh, wow. Like, yeah, okay, this bike isn't a race bike, but it's way more efficient. Like, the pedaling platform is super efficient. It's super fun. 
Like, I don't have to think. I can just freaking plow down things, you know, which is important when you're exhausted and you're on day seven and it's two o'clock in the morning. Um, and so the way that that worked is I actually built the bike up like less than a week before the AZT. Like, <laughs> and I rode it once before the race. And, you know, everyone's like, that's a terrible idea. And I'm just like, hey, like, what's the best place to really get to know a bike and test it out than in an 800-mile ride? <laughs> and so, you know, I built it up myself with the help of a buddy and, and uh, got it dialed in and, and uh, rode it once and then took it on the race. And I really got to know that bike on the race. And, and the reason that I wanted to ride it on a trail bike in general is that's a really, really technical course. Like, the, Arizona is chunky. And, you know, there are some sections that aren't like that, but on a whole, it's a chunky place to ride a bike. And, you know, Oracle Ridge is kind of this infamous descent off the top of Mount Lemmon, and most people, like, walk it, or they walk parts of it, or they're just like, oh, God, I survived that. Like, I had so much fun on that descent. <laughs> and, you know, I was able to, to set it up. I had uh, Nick Smolinski, who owns Rogue Panda Designs um, out of Flagstaff, bikepacking bike packing, uh, bag company. He's a good friend of mine. And so he, you know, built me custom frame bags. He built me a prototype seat post bag so I could run a seat post bag with a dropper. And I was able to load the bike evenly in a way that I could ride it just like a normal bike, like that wasn't even loaded. And so I just had the most fun on that trail on that bike. And honestly, now I would have a hard time deciding if I would, if I wanted to race a Ranger or Rascal <laughs> on that trail because yeah. I just had so much fun. Yeah, I guess the short answer is Ranger wasn't available, but. You know, you think 750, 800 mile race, yeah. you wouldn't be on a trail bike, you'd be on a cross country bike, but. Depends uh, on the trail, totally depends on the trail. Yeah, and I just got a Revel Rascal, as most of the internet mm -hmm. knows, because we've jammed it down <laughs> everyone's face, but um, I'm not a cyclist, which is funny. Like, I love mountain biking, but like, I don't consider myself a cyclist. I'm not a mountain biker. I really enjoy it. Uh, I have a giant dirt biking background, so like I'm very comfortable. But just my initial reaction is like it climbs almost, for lack of a better term, boring, like a hardtail. Like it's just yeah. like, oh, this just climbs and that's great. And then you go down and it just wakes up. Mm -hmm. And like this isn't a testimonial. It's just what I it was like my initial reaction. I only I have. I've owned it for four days or six days, literally. I think I have mm -hmm. 50 miles on it, and I've been... Well, for six days, that's great. I've been driven back and forth to Vermont twice. Oh. No, four times in that six days. So that's pretty good. Oh, consider wow. That's seven yeah. hours for me. Yeah. So I have, se I have a day of driving in that mess. But it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's beautiful. It's a work of art. I, like, texted mm -hmm. Adam immediately and was like, I don't want to ride this. This is a work of art. Like this is beautiful. Like, and it's, but it's, it's phenomenal. And it, 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 so far it rides great. I came from, I had a hardtail for a minute and then I borrowed a friend's, uh, bike. And it was just like, I don't get that bop. I don't get mm -hmm. like that. Like when I'm pedaling that constant. So mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. It's, I can't say enough about them as a company, them as humans, as far as mm -hmm. I've worked with them a little bit. And the build quality and finish is unbelievable. And seeing your bike all built up, mm -hmm. that's how I found you. I think Revel posted it, a picture of like it all just 
bagged out. And I was like, oh, yeah. I can tour on this maybe? Like I can <laughs> do like something? So that's, mm -hmm. it's wild. So yeah. uh, that's my yeah, rebel pitch. <laughs> that's awesome. I mean, they're, they're really great bikes and it's, it's like, obviously I ride for them, but I don't know that I'm even biased. Like they're just such great bikes and, and the way that their pedaling platform is designed. So the, the rear suspension is Canfield balance formula and, you know, Canfield brothers have made amazing downhill bikes for years. And Jeremiah Starkey, who was one of the original owners of Revel when they started it, he tuned the suspension platform so that it would be more efficient for climbing. And so what happens is when you're climbing on, and, and this is a PSA for anybody that owns a Revel, do not lock out your suspension when you're climbing because the way that it's designed is to be, so I will say on technical terrain. So the way it's designed is to be left wide open when you're climbing technical terrain so that as you're pedaling, it keeps the rear wheel in contact with the trail. And it's even, I mean, I, I also own a Y Cycles hardtail and I love the hardtail, but on rough terrain, my full suspension Ranger and Rascal actually climb better because it's not bopping all over the place, bouncing off of rocks. And, you know, sometimes I lock it out if I'm like on pavement or gravel or whatever, but if I'm climbing any kind of a rough trail, it's designed to be climbed open and it's just really, really efficient in that way. And so, yeah, it's just, it's a really great bike. I, I really can't say enough good things about it. The, uh, I get asked a lot, like, what the differences are in ride between the, the Ranger and the Rascal. And I guess for me, the biggest difference that I've noted for myself is the Ranger is also an incredibly capable bike, um, you know, for more of like a downcountry XC bike than a trail bike. Um, it definitely is. I can ride everything on it that I can ride on the Rascal, but I have to pay more attention. Like the rascal just plows and I can, it's, it's very playful as well. I can, you know, twerk it around. I can play with it in the air or whatever. But, um, you know, it's, it's, I don't have to pay as much attention when I pick my line through technical terrain on the rascal. Whereas the rangers is just as capable, but I have to pay more attention and pick my line a little bit more delicately. Um, it's a lot lighter than the rascal. So there's that, but you know, I definitely have to pay a lot more attention. I do ride it, I made a modification, I use a, a Pike um, 130 instead of the SID 120 that it comes with, uh, but I race it with the SID 120 and it rides really well loaded. So yeah, that's the biggest kind of difference that I note between the Ranger and the Rascal. Yeah, this is turning into just a big old Revel advertisement, which is great. So. <laughs> I try not to do that, but I truly love them so much. They're just great. No, it's been, yeah. like I said, it's, they you know, full disclosure and everyone knows, but they sponsored some, uh, podcast episodes. So like there is some, you know, and they sponsor you. So there's always, but like, I don't know, I've ridden a lot of bikes in the last three months. <laughs> I rode a lot of mountain bikes when I was younger and then I kind of got away from it. And now I'm like, I'm obviously I'm diving head first back into it, but it's wild. I'm sure there's other great companies and awesome totally. but like i don't know i like spending my money with like even down to that like they're a small group of people you can see who they are you can look them up you can judge them and then you'll be like i want to spend my money there and i think that's important so uh big shout out to revel bikes for everything okay. they've done for me for jabber for you jabber's the other host of this podcast um so where where in vermont were you riding just curious i rode perry hill yeah two days ago mm -hmm. which is like a little do you know Perry Hill? Are you familiar with Perry Hill? Uh, I haven't ridden there, but I know where it is. Yeah, yeah Perry Hill. We did Caddy Hill. Mm -hmm. uh, my buddy just had a baby, so oh, wow. we met him at Killington and just did a couple laps at Killington because he lives close. And he's mm -hmm. like, 
you know, he wanted to get out of the house but couldn't go far. So we like drove to Killington and did some laps there. Um, nice. But yeah, Caddy Hill, Perry Hill, Killington. I love Vermont. I, oh, I, uh, I lived there in my van for uh, like half of the summer and half of the fall in 2016. And I just, I'd never been there. I had no idea. It's oh, beautiful. It's, it's I amazing. rode, um, I was kind of in the Northeast. I rode, you know, Kingdom Trails. I oh, rode yeah. Burke Mountain. My favorite riding that I've ever done in Vermont was in the Morrisville area, like between Morrisville and Stowe. There are just some really amazing, like kind of raw backcountry trails that were really fun. Yeah. And it's, there's so much water. <laughs> it's funny how it's like a little cult over there, but Vermont's good. Like they have everything that's good. And their mountains yeah. are big, but not huge. You don't have to deal with traffic. You don't have to deal with like chain laws in effect. Like it's great. <laughs> so it's so much fun. I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm a haul from Vermont. I'm six and a half, seven hours, but I get yeah. up there often. So it's good for That's me. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to get to two more things before I kick you off the air here. Uh, okay. <laughs> you had a big injury almost a year ago, almost a date, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Let's just talk a little bit about it because I think it's important. Mm -hmm. um, kind of tell what happened and where we are now almost a year later. Okay. Yeah. So Halloween, October 31st, 2020, um, I was on a bike ride with my boyfriend and uh, it, I had just taken an off season. I just finished my last ultra and took like three weeks off. And he and I went out for a, you know, little four-hour cruisy mountain bike ride uh, in, the, in the backyard, uh, Logan, Utah. And we were at the top of the last descent. It was like this 3,000-foot descent. We climbed for, you know, three hours to get there. And I was just feeling good, having fun, and I was cruising down this trail. It was, it's a technical trail, but at the top, it's just fast and flowy. And it, there was some overgrowth, and I was crashing through the, the overgrowth with my bars, you know, and normal happens all the time and all of a sudden I was flying through the air like I was going 20 miles an hour on my bike and next thing I knew I'm literally flying through the air and my bike's still attached to me and it's coming over top and I'm like what the and I landed straight on my head on the trail and what happened what I didn't realize until later is that hidden in that kind of overgrowth was a sawed off baby aspen that was like three inches in diameter and it was exactly the height of my front brake and so I hit it with my left grip, but not the grip, like the actual front brake. And so I went from 20 miles an hour to essentially squeezing my front brake full stop and just flew over the, the bike and the bike came with me and I landed on my head and then I scorpioned my bike and my legs came over at the top of me and my bike just smashed me, just landed on my back and my head. And I was like, Ugh. you know, I, I didn't black out actually, which is, I think, you know, before that, I didn't realize that only 10% of people who get concussions actually lose consciousness. I had no idea. I've had two other concussions in my life previously where I have lost consciousness briefly. And I didn't lose consciousness, but I had this, this shock of pain uh, back in my head where my head attaches to my neck and then shoot down my back. And, of course, my first thought is like, oh, shit, I'm paralyzed. And, you know, I wiggled my fingers and toes, and I was like, oh, I can still feel things. And my boyfriend was behind me, not right behind me. He was he had taken some photos as I was going down. And, and so I, I just laid there because I knew that he would come up. And so he rode up behind me, and I hollered at him so he wouldn't run me over. <laughs> and he helped me get the bike off of me, and I stood up, and I was like, you know, seeing stars, but I was like, I think I'm okay. And so I actually rode out, and I don't really remember much of the ride out, um, but I 
was fine. Apparently I like wrote all the technical features and there was one of them that I like didn't clear and went back two more times until I cleared it. Um, don't really remember that. <laughs> but I wrote out and then, uh, you know, we drove home and it was a few hours later as we were making dinner that all of a sudden I was like, oh God, I need to go lay down. And that kind of started off like a good probably 10 days of, of pretty classic concussion symptoms, you know, headache, nausea, dizziness, light sensitivity, sound sensitivity. Um, I didn't go to the hospital. I think myself being a healthcare provider, I kind of knew too much. I was like, well, I know what to look for if I have a brain bleed, you know, if I, my blood pressure drops, if I start going downhill really fast, then I'll go into the emergency room. But otherwise, they're not going to do anything for me. Um, and so I didn't go. And, you know, I'm still here, so whatever, I'm fine. But it was, it's been a long road. It's been a really long year. So I wasn't able to do much of anything for the first like three months. I couldn't drive, couldn't go to the grocery store. Um, when I, the first time I did go to the grocery store, I got lost in the grocery store I've been in a billion times here in Logan. And, you know, just overwhelming lights and people and noise and uh, you know. And so, you know, that's the way it was for a few months. Uh, I think I got back on my bike for the first time. Let's see. November, December, January, February, like February, like four months after. And I felt okay, but I don't know if you've ever ridden drunk. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, I felt like I was drunk. Like I would just be riding along the trail pretty slowly and just the, the scenery going by just felt like I was like, you know, it felt really, really weird. It felt like I was really drunk on a bike and I should not have been there. Um, and so... I had an experience where I was riding on a trail in Grand Junction with a girlfriend that I knew really well, and it was super easy, and I hit, like, just a little rock, the one rock in the trail, and my bike started to bobble, and I couldn't, like, right myself. I just had no balance reaction at all, and I ride clipped in. I've ridden clipped in for 20 years, and I have, you know, normally have a response where if I can't save a fall, I will unclip, and I don't even think about it. It just happens. Well, that didn't happen, and I just tipped over into this, like, boulder pit on the side of the trail, <laughs> and I was like, okay, I'm obviously not okay, uh, and so at that point, I got back off the bike for another month, and then when I came back to riding, I, um, I switched to flat pedals just to take that aspect out of it and, you know, had fun, like, remembering how to ride on flats. And was able to work my way back into riding kind of slowly. Um, and in June, I decided to try to race my first ultra again. Uh, I felt at that point like I was riding pretty normally, riding in the way that I knew how to ride. And uh, unfortunately, it didn't go super well. The sleep deprivation just did some really weird things to my brain. And you know, I ended up pulling out. There was also wildfire smoke, just all these factors. And my poor brain was like, no, get me out of here. So I did. Um, you know, but I guess now I've recently stopped riding again. Like what I didn't realize when I was riding all summer, like that was the only place that I felt like myself. I felt normal on the bike. But when I got off the bike, I was like incapacitated. I couldn't do anything. Like when I was bikepacking, I couldn't figure out how to make myself a meal or put up, you know, set up camp, uh, packing the bike, which I've done a million times. I couldn't figure out how to do that. Like any executive functioning tasks were just like not happening for me. And so, you know, my business started going downhill because I couldn't figure out how to, like, get new clients. I couldn't, like, all of the logistical aspects of running a business, I just couldn't do. And so, you know, things kind of started to go downhill. Like, I got off the Continental Divide Trail at the middle of August. 
and things started to go downhill. And I started to get pretty bad insomnia, which is also normal for post-concussion syndrome. And when I can't sleep, like in life now, since my concussion, I can't function at all. So I kind of spiraled downhill over the past few months and it's been really rough. And so about a month ago, I made the decision to stop riding and kind of like reset and recalibrate and try to figure out how to, you know, bring my life back. Like not even just my riding, but the rest of my life in a way that is a little more brain friendly and a little more sustainable to where I'm at now. So yeah, that's kind of, kind of the nutshell of what I've been dealing with the past year. And it's definitely been really hard. It's one of the harder things I've ever had to deal with, but um, I've learned a lot for sure. You know, I think it's important that you've been, you've been very vocal about it on social media and just sharing your story. Cause I think other people are going through it and they don't necessarily know what they're going through or why they're going through it. And you know, even when I asked you to be on this, I, I asked you, hey, do you want to do early? And you were like, I have brain fog early and in the afternoon. And I personally, I just think it's refreshing. And I know you're going through battles and struggling, but the fact that you're sharing these and like it's a concussion. It hap I've had concussions. Kids have concussions. Like it happens. We're in these. We do yeah. these sports. And it's just. I don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say. It's just refreshing that you're sharing these sto this story and just kind of telling everyone that it's real and you walking away from your bike and saying, I need to focus on myself and get this right so that I can continue, then continue to do, you know, hopefully in a month you can get back on your bike and be comfortable again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it is like, that's the thing. Like I'm a physical therapist and I've treated people who have had balance and vestibular issues post-concussion for 13 years, but I had no idea how many systems and how much of your life it can affect until I went through it. And there, you're right, there are so many people that have had those experiences. And, you know, I don't know why the first two concussions I had, I blacked out, but then in a week I was totally fine and BD, right? And this time I wasn't. And I don't know, brains are weird. <laughs> but yeah, I just, and I guess the thing that I just want to say to anybody going through it is like, setting boundaries for yourself is okay. Like when I told you like, hey, I can't do anything before 10 a.m., like that was never me. I was the person getting up at 5.30 and walking my dogs with my partner and then going for a run. But because of the insomnia, like I just can't, I cannot commit to anything before 10 a.m. And it took me a while to like accept that about myself, but that is just what is real for me right now. And so communicating that to the people in my life, whether they get it or not, like they can respect that and they can't respect your boundaries if they don't know what they are. So it is really important to just be really clear about like what you're going through, what you need, what you can't have, what you can't do. And you know, most people are super understanding even if they don't really get it. Yeah, I love that. And which brings me to like my last and final piece here kind of. You have a little segment on your Instagram stories about quitting and being proud of it. Mm. Uh, and I'm not saying you're quitting anything, but like it, I think it was, again, I, I, and I said this, I think it's important though. I think like being able, I think what happened was you were on a trail or an ultra or something with a friend and mm -hmm. she walked away or quit, mm -hmm. but it was the right thing to do at the time, whether it be yeah. for her mental health, physical, that doesn't matter. But mm -hmm. the fact that you're shining light on, quitting because that comes with such a negative that's such a negative term right you quit right mm -hmm. so I guess just elaborate on that a little bit and the importance of quitting 
or it, we can even turn it into setting boundaries for yourself because those are important things to do for yourself. Totally. Yeah. So I, I consider a large difference between quitting and giving up. Those things are very different to me. And to me, giving up is something that we do when we're in the middle of something that's hard and our nervous system is, you know, shot, overworked, we're in what I call the red zone, we're like, oh, this is so hard, or I'm in pain, or I'm lost, or I'm whatever, whatever, you know, like that state that like, we all get to at some point during adventure sports, like, and then we decide to go home and give up, like that's giving up to me, and I really, really try hard not to give up ever, and I try to, you know, coach other people not to as well. Quitting to me is very different. Quitting is something that's very calculated. It's very well thought out. It's very much from a place of like, this thing that I'm doing, regardless of how much I've put into it, how much it means to me, how much everybody, you know, who else is invested in watching me do this thing or whatever, regardless of any of that stuff, this is no longer healthy for me. Whether that's, like you said, your mental health, your physical health. My friend that, w that I was riding the Continental Divide Trail with, like something pretty bad happened to a member of her family and she tried to push through it and complete the trail and, and she just wanted to be there for her family and she was just unhappy and she's like, this was this huge goal I had and it was really important to me, but then this other thing happened and I realized that my family is even more important to me. And so she walked away and, you know, she's a good friend of mine and she's also an athlete that I coach. And I was with her on the trail when that happened. I joined her for a few weeks of the trail. And, you know, she was asking me, she's like, are you disappointed in me? I said, no, I'm freaking proud because this was the right decision for you. And, you know, there, like you said, there is such a stigma around quitting. And, and I, you know, I don't know, you always say like, oh, destigmatize these things or whatever. But really, like, we should destigmatize quitting because when something's no longer healthy for you, it doesn't matter what anyone else thinks. Like the right decision is to do what is right for you and make that decision from a place of like being calm and centered and grounded and not freaking out, but just like, yeah, like I don't want to do this. I don't want to walk away, but this is what's right for me. And I feel at peace about it and I'm going to walk away. And that's exactly, and I, I do say I quit riding. I did, I was planning to race the AZT this year. I was planning to be on that start line today. I quit. I quit training, I quit pushing. I called up Chris and I was like, I can't do this, I'm not healthy. And he's like, we support you, do what you need to do. And you know, like it freaking hurts. I wish I was out there racing right now, but that's not what's healthy for me right now. Like what's healthy for me right now is chop wood, carry water, <laughs> try to sleep, you know, rebuild myself in a way that's a little easier on my brain. I've got this, you know, my cognitive therapist calls it a brain battery that I've just been running out and mountain biking is so hard on your brain. There's so much sensory input coming at you when you're on the bike, like not to mention, you know, regulating your heart rate, regulating your breathing, regulating your muscles. Like your brain does a lot on the mountain bike. And my intention is to rebuild my fitness and my strength in ways that are a little easier on the brain and don't have so much sensory input. And eventually, yeah, I will be back on the bike. Like I will be back to ultra racing. I don't know when, like I, I'm not gonna, I wouldn't ever give any like, I will be back at this time. I'm gonna get back on my bike at this time. Like, no, I'm gonna get back on the bike when I'm ready. And you know, I do think that quitting is a really healthy thing. Yeah, and I just love that you, you compared the difference between giving up and quitting. Like you yeah. defined it, which is something I never compared. Yeah. So that was a very refreshing take. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm glad you like it. It's just kind of something that came to me. I think I was 
I don't know, I was giving a talk to a, a friend of mine's, um, has a female, like women's mountain biking group, tons of women. And, you know, it, from beginners to experts and, and we were just talking about quitting. And I think that it just came to me during that talk. I was like, there's a big difference, you know, like when we give up, it's from this place of like, oh, this is really hot. Like you feel whiny, you know, maybe you're crying, whatever. You just feel whiny and then you walk away. Like, yeah, that's giving up. But they, to me, they are very, very different things. Yeah, I love it. Uh, Dr. Eliza, <laughs> tell everyone where they can follow you on Instagram. Uh, I think you have a website or you do some blog yeah. posts. Where can they follow you and anything else you kind of have going on right now? Okay. Um, thanks for asking. I always forget that part. <laughs> uh, so the best place to get in touch with me or to follow my adventures or whatever I'm doing uh, is on Instagram, and that's at Eliza Sampy, and that's E-L-I-Z-A-S-A-M-P-E-Y. And my website is vitalmotionlife.com. And from that website, you can kind of find everything. I've got, like, athlete stuff on there, media stuff. I've got coaching information on there, all of that stuff. But Instagram's a good place to start. Uh, what I have going on now, I mean, I kind of told you, I'm just, I'm just trying to rebuild really slowly. I'm trying to expand the capacity of my brain to do even, like, simple household tasks. Like, my memory's terrible. I'm trying to remember to freaking unload the dishwasher. You know? um, I will probably be going back into my van and heading to the desert in not too long. Um, and so, you know, when I'm out there, I'm probably going to go for some runs. I'm going to do some functional training. I'll get back on my bike if it feels like the right thing to do. I am actually planning a pretty exciting um, ski rafting expedition-style trip with a good friend of mine, which will probably be in May-ish, sometime around there. So I've got six months to figure out how to get myself strong enough to carry a 60-pound pack with skis <laughs> on skis. Um, yeah, so that's, that's on the radar. I've got a couple bike-centric pursuits that I would like to do next year. Um, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm not committing to anything definite. I'm just planning. I'm keeping myself motivated the best that I can, and I'm just building back as sustainably as I can. So yeah, if you want to follow that journey, join me on the Insta. <laughs> join me on the Insta. Well, Eliza, thank you so much. You're a complete badass. I can't wait to see what's next because it sounds like you're taking the time to rebuild and you're just going to come back stronger. So hoping so <laughs> yeah so i appreciate Thanks it thank you so me. much yeah absolutely thank you for it's been an hour and 15 minutes so oh wow yeah you crushed it, it. you're amazing <laughs> thank you so much oh thank you have fun on that new revel it's amazing <laughs> so there it was that was the uh that was the episode i thought it was bomb i hope you thought it was bomb i want to thank um first off eliza for hopping on the show and telling her story I want to thank Onyx Backcountry for doing all they do for us. And I can't wait to continue to work with these men and women over there because they are amazing. And we have some Onyx athletes coming our way, coming on the pod. And we'll talk, you know, we're going to dive right into this. Again, it's, you know, this month it's 20% off. Use code Out of Bounds. And they're going to donate $10 of your money to an avalanche center of your choice. So really, it's a $10 donation and 20% off, and it's $30 for the year. And I'm not good at math, but that's like a dollar, I think, that you're actually paying for this app that should be worth millions of dollars. Uh, it's literally a guidebook in your pocket. So check it out on Expat Country. Follow me on Instagram at Mr. Adam X. Follow at Out of Podcast. Leave a five-star review. 
Let us know what you think. Listen to Jabber Show. Listen to The Girls Show, Big Stick Energy. And have a great day. Have a great tomorrow. And I'll see you next week.